everyone, and thanks for joining us today for the latest in the Herbert Smith Freehills Charities podcast series, which provides short insights into the fantastic work of our clients in the third sector. My name is Rebecca Perlman, and I'm a charities lawyer based in our London office. I'm here today with HSF partner Richard Norwich, who heads up our global charities practice. And we have the privilege of being joined today by leading charities lawyer and general counsel of Oxfam, Joss Saunders. This is the second of two podcasts that we're recording with Joss. Um, as mentioned in part one, Oxfam is set up as an international confederation across 65 countries. And we heard a bit about your role within the confederation in part one, Joss. So I just thought, building off of that, um, for my first question, I wondered what you thought were the biggest challenges facing charity confederations, be they of a similar large scale to Oxfam or of a smaller scale? Uh, thanks, Rebecca. And I think maybe there's two aspects to that. One is um, networks of charities which work in the UK with very much a branch structure. And the second is networks of charities that work internationally with other charities working in different countries. And I suppose it's the second of those that I know more about. So I'd, I'd focus on those. And I guess it is it is very much the way in which uh, a lot of international organisations now, organisations focused on uh, civil society internationally, focused on uh, tackling issues like poverty and inequality and, and climate change, benefit from a globalised approach. And in fact, one of the reasons that Oxfam in its confederation grew as a network is the realisation that change happens at different levels, at global level, at national level, at local level. And that if you want to be able to address things in those three different ways, you need to be grounded in civil society in different countries. So you can't just be a British organization which goes to other countries and tells people what to do, if you like. So that's why I think increasingly non-governmental organizations are organized in terms of federations or confederations. And I suppose for us, the word confederation, like the Swiss confederation, implies a slightly looser degree of connection than, than a federal structure. One of the greatest opportunities also leads to the greatest challenge. And that is that charities are regulated very, very differently from companies. So if you take a business, which is a global business, it has its top level uh, company, its holding company, and all the other businesses underneath that are in common ownership. But of course, it is the nature of charities and the way in which they exist and are regulated that each one is independent in its own jurisdiction, in its own country. So in our case, we have currently 21 different members around the world in 21 different locations each of which is subject to different laws, but also is not subject to a common ownership. Uh, and so the whole model is, if you like, the opposite from the, the business model where you're accountable to shareholders. Uh, each member of the family is accountable in its own country, in its own way. And so rulemaking and finding the things that bind us together, that they're more in common, as famously are, our, our, our dearly beloved colleague Joe Cox once said, is actually very difficult. It takes a lot of discussion. It takes a lot of negotiation. And there can be tensions and there can be conflicts when 
actually rules in one country say you shouldn't work in a particular way and rules in another country say you should. Uh, and that that I think is is probably one of the most fascinating uh, but also one of the hardest parts of being an advisor, whether it's a, a legal advisor or other advisor to to international organizations. And if I can just give you one example, which gives you a flavor of that is we've we've just completed a reorganization in Oxfam International where we realized that being based in 21 countries, but working in 65 doesn't actually provide accountability to those countries where we don't have a headquarters organization, if you like, where we don't have a member. And so we wanted to change the governance in such a way that every country where we work had a share, had a stake, had a say in the governance. And so we created a new assembly, which meant that power shifts. We give a say in who our board members are. We give a say in how rules are made, in, in what policies we should adopt to this global assembly, which consists of representatives, what we call stakeholder representatives, from lots of different countries around the world. And money is separated from power to the extent that you, you can, uh, because we give a say to those uh, partners, if you like, our partner organizations in the different countries where we work, and they get a vote, a binding vote at the assembly. And that's been a tremendous innovation. It took four years, though, to negotiate because we had to navigate our way around 21 different legal systems. We had to navigate our way around fiduciary duties as perceived very, very differently in common law countries, in civil law countries and so on. So I think it's a, an example of showing the, con the challenge of working in confederation, but also the benefit, because having that global assembly will make us much, much closer to uh, to the work of delivery in the different countries, to the partner organizations with whom we work. And it's about shifting power, which is always very, very difficult to negotiate internationally. That's fascinating. And, and, and I can see that as an organization, it's clear that a, a deep understanding of the local culture and political economy of the countries in which you operate is absolutely critical in order to drive effective, positive change. Um, and, and hearing from you, you know, about how the model works in practice, I can see how the Confederation provides a way of doing this. Um, that said, it, it's clearly not without its tension and its challenges, particularly from a, a governance and a regulatory point of view. Um, uh, while we're on the topic of regulation, um, you must have needed to adjust to several waves of regulatory um, changes and, and changes in charity law over your career. What is your assessment of the state of play currently in the UK? So I think the status of play in the UK is currently very different from the status in a number of other countries, although um, Australia is is pretty close to the regulatory environment in, in the UK. But in other countries, it's different. And maybe we can we can talk about the global perspective later. I would say looking at, at the position in the UK, obviously, Oxfam has emerged in recent years from a very challenging charity commission inquiry uh, arising from safeguarding issues um, in in Haiti. Uh, and that was a very intense engagement with the regulator. And in fact, it was probably the most time consuming 
and challenging inquiry that the Charity Commission have had to do in recent years. It was actually our second inquiry. And what some people forget is that the first inquiry by the Charity Commission into Oxfam was one where we received a lot of criticism. And in fact, the Charity Commission found that we breached our charitable mandate because we had given support to the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa and uh, in particular support to Nelson Mandela and the change process in South Africa in the late 80s and early 90s. And that fell foul of regulatory expectations because the law at that stage in the UK, which mercifully has changed extensively and in a good way, was very constricting in its way of seeing what charity is for. There's been a, a whole series of cases. I guess one of the most famous in the 1960s was when work to promote good race relations was rejected by the Charity Commission as a charitable purpose. And then it was only when the Race Relations Act was passed in the 70s that Parliament declared that good race relations was a, 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 a public policy goal and charities could then be formed to develop good race relations. And so at the time, working to uh, challenge the apartheid regime in South Africa in the late 80s and early 90s was seen as something which charities shouldn't be involved with. And I think that one of the really interesting developments and things that came out of that inquiry was that the Charity Commission changed their position, uh, very much helped by other changes that were going on. And so we now get a position where the Charity Commission have a publication CC9 about uh, political activities and campaigning, which is very open to charities recognising that you achieve your charitable mandate first, as we discussed in the in the first podcast, by actually not just dealing with problems as they arise, but dealing with the causes of problems. And that is fundamentally something which involves public policy and public change. And in those years, we've also seen over the last 20 years, the promotion of human rights being recognised as a good charitable purpose. And so increasingly, charities working in the LGBT field, charities working on race equality, on disability discrimination, are recognised as charitable purposes. And I think the, the form of regulation has changed. So that's, that's the first, I suppose, of two big changes. The second big change and, and an issue with the state to play of regulatory law, not just charity law, but regulatory law in general now, which is very challenging, is just the volume of regulation and the expectations on the trustees of charities who we remember are, are by and large unpaid volunteers and yet are the directors of the charitable companies. Many charities are, are configured as charitable companies and therefore who are the ones who are held to account for everything that the charity does. And there are some uh, people who now believe that that model is no longer really viable in the current regulatory framework where there are large numbers of laws with criminal sanctions on directors personally. If you think about the Bribery Act, for example, that's very much a, a trend in legislation is to criminalise behaviour, but then to provide defences. So um, the, the defence of having reasonable procedures. And there are increasing uh, increasing ways in which both uh, black letter law, the, the, the statute law, but also the soft law in, in regulatory terms imposes burdens. So 
For example, uh, there's a very important uh, publication that affects charities working internationally, but also UK charities. Uh, and it's the guidance from the Charity uh, Commission on charities working with non-charities. And a non-charity is anyone other than a UK registered charity. And when you read that guidance, which has got some marvellous uh, things in it and, and is very well written, you find that there are nearly 100 obligations on trustees. And one of the challenges, I think, is just reading and being aware of the full volume of regulation that there is now. And of course, the charity sector isn't exempt. The charity sector shouldn't be exempt. And the charity sector is regulated and needs to be regulated in a similar way to the fact that the financial services sector needs to be regulated. I think the challenge is that the expectations on charities is that they'll do the whole thing for free, that you will manage all this huge regulatory burden, but won't spend any money on it. And actually, it takes a lot of work to make things work. It takes a lot of work, as we were saying in the in the first podcast, to do the plumbing, if you like, to make sure that the systems are in place. It takes a lot of people and a lot of time. And that comes with a cost at a time when charities are under pressure to show value for money and where people want to give money and see the money go directly to the the end product as they see it to be to be used in programs and and donors need encouragement i think and particularly institutional donors need encouragement to see that if they want the high quality uh, end product you have to build in the regulatory compliance to fit that as well thanks joss i i, I couldn't agree with you more on the expectations of, you know facing trustees of UK charities and the challenges that that presents in the context of trustees being volunteers. If that current model is beginning to seem outdated in the context of this growing regulatory burden, what do you see as being the most effective alternative? I'm not sure that we're ready for the alternative yet. Um, One of the alternatives that you could see coming in is a form of two-tier board uh, along the the continental model uh, along the model of, for example, Germany or, or the Netherlands. And we've had our own experiments with that in Oxfam International, where you have um, a, a board, which is a paid board of managers, um, and then a supervisory board, which has fewer legal obligations. So they're, in a sense, a revision chamber. They have uh, accountability and there is accountability to them, but they don't have all the expectations and the obligations on them and and in fact liabilities on them that the boards of trustees have at the moment. Uh, It's amazing and it's wonderful that people are willing to come forward to be charity trustees, but the cost of that is very, very high and insurance is a partial but uh, incomplete Uh, solution to that. So I do think it is likely that there will be some changes there. We do have a new charities bill, which is uh, being drafted by the Law Commission and is is now in Parliament. uh, And that that will introduce some improvements, but doesn't really affect the fundamentals of the fact that regulation isn't just set by charity law. It's it's, um, a diversion and sanctions legislation. It's banking legislation. It's whole areas of legislation. So I think it's a problem that that we have to live with for some time to come. Rebecca, I did think that the other aspect to this, though, is um, looking at diversity, which I hope we'll have a little bit of time to discuss uh, the whole impact of Black Lives Matter on charities. But 
in terms of diversity, if we're wanting to be governed by diverse boards, then actually we need people who've got the time to spend governing us and and not just the usual suspects, if you like, not just um, people who have got the luxury because of their income or because of their retirement uh, or because their employers very generously allow them to be trustees. Uh, and it may be that that in turn will also drive us towards looking at greater diversity through things like attendance allowance for board members. We wouldn't necessarily need to pay a salary, but an attendance allowance like there is for local authorities might be a way forward to explore. Thanks, Joss. You, you mentioned earlier that the, the UK's regulatory status quo differs from the position in other countries. Could you shed a bit more light on the global perspective and perhaps we can also pick up the point you've raised there around Black Lives Matter and, and this global focus on diversity and inclusion at the board level and, and more broadly within charitable organisations. Yes, and I do think this is absolutely fundamental. Uh, I guess if we can start off with the impact of Black Lives Matter, I've seen a radical shift, and not radical enough, by the way, Rebecca, in my view, but a radical shift in who is at the board table? So um, when Oxfam International was created as an umbrella organization, which was for, for the national members of Oxfam International, which was in 1995, uh, there were eight, uh, eight members of the organization. There's, there's now 21. Uh, and those eight members were almost entirely from Europe or North America. There was, there was one Australian there as well. Um, and it was a predominantly white group of people. Uh, we're now fast forward uh, 26 years where we've got a new uh, board. And I mentioned earlier the uh, assembly that we've uh, created with stakeholder representatives from many of the different countries we operate in. The new board that took um, uh, office in on 1st of July in Oxfam International only has one European member. Uh, its chair is a woman from Malaysia. There are uh, board members uh, from very diverse backgrounds, not just in terms of uh, ethnicity uh, and religion, uh, but also in terms of age, in terms of background, in terms of sector. So we have a nine person board from Africa, from Asia, from Latin America, uh, and one, as I say, from Europe. And I think that's a huge change and a necessary change for an organization that seeks to address global problems. You can't address global problems from uh, Brussels uh, exclusively or, or from Oxford. Uh, the other uh, aspect of the change for us was the shift of the headquarters from Oxford, where it was founded in, in the 1940s, to Nairobi in Kenya. And that means that we're now governed by a combination of uh, Dutch law, because Oxfam International is a Netherlands registered foundation. The Netherlands, if you like, being the home of INGO law almost, of, of uh, global uh, law and development. Uh, but Nairobi as well, with a regulation with the government of Kenya, with what we call our host country agreement, having to comply with NGO laws that there are in East Africa and, and with the African Union. So I think that's been an incredibly important trend. The other trend that we see 
is very much shifting sands in regulation of NGOs, where historically, I suppose, um, charity and, and development could be seen through a kind of white savior complex um, lens, where charity was something that you did to people as opposed to with people. And I think the word with has become far important than the word uh, for. We're not any longer here, uh, and we shouldn't ever have been here, to tell people what they need, but to help give them voice, to work with them, to represent, uh, help them to represent themselves, uh, as opposed to um, charity being primarily a way of dispensing largesse from wealthy communities to uh, to poorer communities. So I think all those changes help to shift the sands and shift the debate on what charity is for, how development works, how geopolitical changes are happening, the growth of uh, of importance in the least developed countries in the climate change negotiations would be another uh, example of that. Um, the way that the president or the former president of the Maldives recently sent a, a letter of commiseration to Angela Merkel in Germany after the floods in Germany saying, you know, we we feel real solidarity for you as another climate uh, disaster affected country. And I think these are all ways in which we're starting to see the balance change in a very, very positive way. Thanks, Joss. It, it's really interesting to hear about the steps that Oxfam has taken to ensure that the global perspective is really baked into the governance of the organization as well as its operations. Uh, I, th I think it's a very interesting model for other charities operating in the development sector um, to find out more about. My last question is a bit more personal. If you had one piece of advice for a charity lawyer, whether in private practice or in situ at a charity, what would it be? I think that for anyone who is advising other people on what to do or how to do it, it is absolutely essential to have some personal experience of how charities work. And so I suppose my top piece of advice to anyone who was setting out to become a charity lawyer is join a charity as a volunteer, yes, but preferably as a trustee. A lot of charities are in need of uh, trustees. Um, I apologize because I did say earlier that some of the regulatory burdens on trustees have become very, very heavy. Uh, and yet we as, as lawyers are probably some of the people who are best equipped to deal with that regulation. So I think uh, I'd recommend everybody who wants to be a charity lawyer or is a charity lawyer to make sure that they're a trustee of at least one charity. Thanks very much, Joss. Joss has obviously raised quite a few different things uh, during uh, this podcast and indeed the first episode as well. And we'll uh, include some of the links in the podcast notes if you want to find out a bit more about that and also a bit more about what HSF does uh, in the charity space and the impact investment space. So thanks very much for listening uh, and please do watch out for future episodes of the HSF Charities podcast. <laughs>